Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Josh Winning. He is an author and a film writer. He's written two novels, The Shadow Glass and his latest book, Burn the Negative, a horror film, a horror novel I should say, set in a, uh, a film environment um, around, well I don't want to spoil it because uh, we're going to talk about it and I think you'll get a clear idea of the atmosphere of the book and uh, and Josh's intentions. So I'm going to leave that to him to elucidate upon. If you enjoy the episode, please remember to like, subscribe, leave a review, spread the word. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. John T, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y, small pause then, as I thought, should I call it Twitter or should I call it X? I decided to call it Twitter. I wonder when we will change our habits or maybe never, maybe it will collapse before we have to. Never mind. Anyway, don't worry about all of that. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll just enjoy the conversation. It's yeah, it's always a bit nerve wracking putting a new book out there. So it's great that um, it kind of worked for you. That's lovely. <laughs> but the um, yeah, this idea really it really came from the movies. Mm. Um, so I'm a journalist, IRL. I'm a film journalist. I've worked for Total Film for 15 years now, I think, um, in a freelance capacity, doing various jobs for them. And one of the jobs that they sent me on 
was flying out to uh, upstate New York to meet Lorraine Warren, mm. who is probably familiar a familiar name to anybody who's watched the Conjuring films, because she was the paranormal uh, investigator, parapsychologist, perhaps they call themselves. It was her and her husband Ed Warren, and they were very famous in the seventies for investigating so-called paranormal occurrences. Weren't they the couple behind the Amityville house? Was Absolutely, that the... yeah. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, so that was one of their, their big cases that they did. They also came to the UK and she wandered around Baldy Rectory one time. Um, and a lot of the the Conjuring films are based on um, cases that they investigated. And so I went to meet her as part of press for The Conjuring 2. Uh, I think it was around 2013. And there was like a, just a pack of us journalists who were shipped over to America um, we went to her house, which was very unusual, sort of, um, I forget where it was. It was upstate New York. I, f- I always forget the names of these places. I want to say British Columbia. It wasn't, it was, because that's in Canada, obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds similar to that. Maybe it was Connecticut. I think it was in Connecticut. Right. Yeah, Connecticut sounds right, actually. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, uh, and from the street, this inconspicuous American house, but Lorraine had added to it over the years so that it actually had 13 different levels and it's not quite the sort of like hulking monstrosity you imagine it was 13 very subtle levels you know steps up and down here and there all over the place and so we all went to her house and we got to meet her and chat to her and you know find out what it's like living your life as a a psychic medium Uh, we went downstairs into the occult museum that they had built in their basement, which is this sort of um, treasure trove of uh, cursed objects, such as the Annabelle doll, the original Mm. Annabelle doll that was obviously made quite a bit scarier for the Annabelle movies. And this was a place that was like, you know, twice blessed by a priest once a week kind of thing to keep all the the bad juju in check. So I just, I found Lorraine Warren fascinating because Mm. she so completely believed in the paranormal but she wasn't afraid of it. Um, she was incredible. She died um, a couple of years ago, but she was so um, confident in her faith. She was a Christian. She she believed in these awful things that happened, but she believed that she was protected um, by God. And I just found that really interesting. I, I'm, an, I'm an atheist myself, but um, I found her as a person really fascinating. And I thought one day I'd love to write a book about a psychic and, and kind of just dig into that a little bit and explore that. And so that's that was the seed of the idea for Burn the Negative. Uh, and because I think, you know, I'm an author, you draw from your own experience. Uh, my, my idea became, what if I paired a psychic who was sort of a bit sceptic about the paranormal mm. with a journalist who maybe believed in it a bit or had experienced it a bit? What if I put them together and they investigated a case together and that's where burn the negative was you know birthed yeah and it's uh, it's interesting that you say that about her because i think watching the conjuring series as well um patrick wilson and vera farmiga they uh absolutely nail that quality of um not in any way being sort of being serious faith people of faith and and in a way that you kind of rarely see in films uh that's that they're not either sort of funded by some wacky christian group or you know or it's the or it's the opposite 
but um but yeah they really nail that so so yeah um with burn the negative you have this that that idea of the, the the psychic and the journalist but you also have this idea of the cursed film which i found fascinating and and, and most people will look at this and their first thoughts will perhaps be uh poltergeist yeah yeah poltergeist is a big one you know it's it's obviously famous for um the tragedies that befell a number of the cast members involved in the film i've never i didn't really set out to write a book about cursed films it was it was i was more interested in in laura the the protagonist who's this journalist who goes to visit the set of a horror series that is actually a remake of the cursed film that she started in as a child and I was just really interested in her. I think the curse, I could have slightly taken or, or left it, but I wanted to really get to grips with this person who had endured some weird kind of movie-based trauma in their childhood and ran full pelt in the opposite direction until she couldn't run anymore. But I do think that cursed movies are interesting. Well, you know, I say cursed movies in a very, like, big massive inverted commas because you know i think the the reason i find them interesting is because we have added this meaning to these films and it's 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 easy to get swept up in the ghoulishness of it and the idea of of these horrific things happening to people but then you remember these really are people regular real life people who died um in tragic circumstances um and so that's why i was quite careful with burn the negative to not not really base the book or anything in it on anything specific to real life because I didn't want to you know exploit anybody else's trauma or anything mm. but also I that wasn't what was interesting to me it was I was more interested in the meaning that we apply to these films and what it is about the idea of a cursed film that is so compelling yeah, it strikes me that because you put that scepticism in the book as well. In the there's one moment where somebody's talking about the Wizard of Oz. You know, there's a munchkin that commits suicide on screen according to some uh, you know, internet law, um, and you're saying, "Oh, that's not." Uh, one of the characters is saying, "Oh, that's nonsense," and it doesn't. You know, it's it's just a, a a thing. But it is kind of like that faces of death thing of of you know, um, and the popularity of the idea of the snuff film in the seventies that there's this. There's this almost a magical quality to seeing death on screen, which kind of predates the internet. Because once you get mobile phones and the internet, then seeing people dying on screen becomes a relatively um, easy thing to do. If that's what you want to go and look at, you can find those videos. Um, but in the 70s and 80s, the idea that you could see someone actually die uh, in front of you was like... I don't know. It, it just had an importance that, it, you know, unfortunately, I don't think it, it does anymore. Yeah. And not to be reductive, but I think there is sort of a bit of a magician's trick about it as well, where people kind of want to know, oh, my God, did they actually cut that cow in half in Apocalypse Now? Did they actually, there's a snake in Friday the 13th that someone machetes in half. Did they really kill that snake? Because I think, yeah, there is that that weird attraction towards the darkness, the darkness of human nature, you know, it, not, it goes all the way, back, the way back to like the Colosseums, you know, people used to watch, pay to watch people being killed for real, you know, of a weekend back mm. then. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's definitely bled through the ages into movies because movies do have this mystique about them where 
you know, as a film journalist, you try to explain to people that when you meet famous or when you interview famous people, um, it's not the same as just meeting somebody on a night out for a drink. You know, it's mm. it's so artificial. You've got a clock running. You you go into a room, you chat to them. You've got some questions you've you've got written out. You chat to them for sort of twenty minutes if you're lucky. They'll probably cut it down to ten, and um, then you're gone and you're done and you're you're forgotten. And people want to know how, what were they like, what were they really like, and. You can either say they were great or you can say they weren't great and people can react accordingly. But but you're never getting a full impression of that person. They're this they're more of an idea, you know, in the same way as a cursed movie is an idea. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I always find it funny if you interview someone and then for some reason you meet them afterwards like a social event or something you know you've interviewed them you've been part of an interview junket and then you go for a drink at the bar and you bump into them there and it's sort of like oh hi and you just see a totally different person suddenly emerges and i've i've had yeah. that a couple of times happen and it, it it shows you the distance between who they actually are and the interviewee although there have been a few people who i just think that's just absolutely who they are. Uh, Jeff, Gold, <laughs> yeah. Jeff Goldblum would be one of those. Where oh yeah, oh yeah, I've had a run in with Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> there, you, there you go. <laughs> he was lovely. But I know what you mean. It like I, I kind of reference this a bit in the book as well, where when the structure of an interview is suddenly removed mm. and you meet these people, it's it feels like this wild moment of unpredictability. You know, mm. you you don't have uh something to actually bring you together necessarily so you're suddenly in the wild west with them kind of thinking oh do i talk to them do i not talk to them what even do i talk to about do i want to even talk to them anyway you know is there anything mm. that we we should or could talk about no, no absolutely thing. yeah do i do I really want to be friends with harrison ford i mean yeah it's obviously <laughs> but but do i <laughs> yeah and then you start going into like the rabbit hole of like, but what do I actually want from a friend? <laughs> it starts to get a bit weird. I mean, if I call him at three o'clock in the morning, is Harrison going to be there for me or not? You know, that's the that's the no, absolutely. I I I think the uh, that all of that stuff that you've got Hollywood absolutely nailed down and the junker and the idea as well. There's a, there's this kind of give and take between like they really need the interview. Uh, for the publicity so they're willing to accommodate the journalist to some degree but also they don't want the journalist to go too far and and you know they want to only be seen in a certain light oh yeah like i could i could go on and on about the the weird power play that is going on there when you are part of you know when you're a journalist and you're interviewing the talent which is sort of like a director or a, an actor or whatever you've always got the buffer of the pr between you and it's this really bizarre power play where essentially the, the the talent, as they call it, they need to sell the film. They mm. need you to sell the film. But you as a journalist, your time is nowhere near as valuable as the time of the famous person. Mm. And so it's a very strange dynamic. It, it's quite, um, you know, it's that thing where it's like you get passed around a little bit. And sort of, you know, your time gets cut back or you sit, you sit waiting for hours and hours and hours. You always get asked to be there 15 minutes before the time that's scheduled yeah. with the knowledge that it will always be 15 minutes late. 
Oh yeah. You know, oh yeah. So, so there, there, there's always a built-in thirty-minute wait if if you turn up on time. You know. Yeah, totally. I've only ever had it once that a PR phoned me when I was on the way to an interview. I was going to Soho Hotel in London, and I was you know fifteen minutes early. And I got a phone call saying, oh, hi, Josh, um, I just want to check you're on your way because John Goodman, who I was interviewing, um, is ready for you. And I was like, what the hell? Like, what? This has never, ever happened in my life. So I like, you know, had to run to get there thinking I still had a good hour of sitting around. And yeah. I just walked straight into the room. It was bizarre. It's never happened again. <laughs> How was he? Oh, yeah, he was he was lovely. He was um, it, it was like a career retrospective. So I never was, had an Oscar um, nomination. I know. And he's, he is fantastic, mm. but he, um, the thing that really strikes me is the the memory of asking him about the Flintstones movie. And he just flat refused to, to talk about it. He said to me that he had no memory of making that film. Um, and I mean, what can you do in that situation? And I just kind of went, Oh, that's a very, that's strange. How strange. <laughs> that's we, we, was he hit on the head by a boulder while he was making <laughs> it? Or yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 is yeah. That's not exactly a secret. <laughs> that's yeah. not exactly. It's like, it's like Jared Leto says that he wasn't in Urban Legend, the nineteen ninety eight um, teen horror film. He's like, no, I'm not in that film. Like Jared, you clearly are. We can watch you. We could freeze frame the on the on the credit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it is that is an odd one when you're when you're sort of lied to your face because um, that again talking about the power play. That is also sort of like, I can just say this and we can both know I'm lying, but yeah. what are you going to do about it? You know? Yeah. Um, and also there's that, that's a, I find that one particularly weird because it's, it's sort of like denying your own career in some ways. It's like, surely, surely you just the state, the, the place you're in now is built on the steps that were laid by your previous work, no matter what that work was. So just outright um, denying that he was in a film that was actually made a lot of money. It was very popular. I'm, I'm a fan of Urban Legend. To just deny that he was even in it is a really strange thing to do. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, I just sometimes think there's there's a, you know, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I remember meeting Brian De Palma and asking him, saying, oh, um, you, you must be, a bit, uh, it must be great to be here in Italy, uh, you know, the home of the giallo and Dario Argento to show this film, which obviously has these influences. I've never seen a giallo in my life. And it was like, oh. Wait, wait, wait a second. Wait, what? <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? Oh, my friend Martin Scorsese tells me they're good, but I've never seen one. I was like, <laughs> wow. It's like, it's all, and he's sort of staring at me, going, go on, go on, mother. Yeah. Go on, go on. Just tell me I'm a liar, you know? Have a go. Like, <laughs> Come on, have a go if you think you're hard enough. Um, <laughs> back, to, back to the novel where we're, uh, before we stray too far into the lying celebs and the dirty lies they tell me. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that you, we've got the cursed movie, which, uh, which, as you've said, you, 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 you wasn't your principal thing, but, but I think has this, this, this fascinating, this fascination for people. And you've also got something which I think is probably one of the hardest things to do in horror, which is sort of to come up with a really convincing and and genuinely scary villain in the Needle Man. And I was thinking, this is an ingenious bit of casting here. Oh really? I'll oh, tell me why. Because I'm I'm still a bit funny about the Needleman. So you oh, tell really? me. 
Tell me your thoughts, yeah. Oh, okay, right. I once wrote a story called Mr. Knives. <laughs> it was just <laughs> it was just short story, and it was just about a guy who basically wore a coat which he could press a button and these knives would just flick up and he would just em- embrace people and then press a button and he'd get, oh. get, you know. And it's just that thing that you actually say in the novel of something sharp and pointy, uh, so claws or, or you know, um, ice picks or, or, you know, a hook or and, and a machete, you know, anything like that. And, you've, you know, a guy walking around a, with a gun is not a horror villain. Yeah. You know, yeah. it has to be something bloody and visceral and, and sharp, a razor blade. Um, so I just have that. And I just I just like the needle as a as a, as a concept was. And of course, it. well, I don't want to reveal too much about the, the story, but it, it also sort of picks up on some of the metaphors that, that you could uh, in terms of certain types of behavior as well. Mm, yeah yeah the needle man um i was so i was didn't i did an interview last week where the interviewer talked about freddy krueger mm. and how um and how with the needle man i had sort of like just really gone for the freddy krueger um sort of reference and i was a bit i kind of answered the question a bit strangely because i was kind of thrown by that because mm. actually i wasn't really going for the freddy krueger thing it was I think with the Needleman, and maybe this is actually a good thing, with the Needleman, I kind of wanted him to be every horror villain we've ever had in some ways. You know, that that silhouette, the black coat, the hat, the bandages, the the, the sort of needle point fingers. Um, and so I guess that interviewer read Freddy Krueger into it. But in my mind... I was actually weirdly thinking more about the fisherman in I Know What You Did Last Summer. Mm. Um, that imposing black coat with you can't see the face and he's got the hat tugged on top and he's got the sharp hook in his hand. Um, and then also I was thinking about uh, books like the Point Horror books that I read as a kid, like 90s American pulpy kind of horror books where the villains kind of were quite um ephemeral they were often um you weren't really sure if they were there or not uh and so you know there's a scene in burn the negative where um laura sees the needle well there's a couple of scenes where laura sees the needleman but you don't know if he's necessarily there or not Mm -hmm. even when there's a body at the end of the scene a dead body i should say um so there's there were lots of different things that i was sort of like channeling i guess like i I didn't really think too deeply about the needleman i just knew that i needed to have a villain like a named villain who was uh sort of like a strong presence like memorable enough that you he you know he he stuck around in your memory while you were reading but 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 not sort of like so unique that he derailed the plot i think is what i'm trying to not so the, yeah. the whole book became about him and, and you get yeah. people saying, I want another couple of novels about the Needleman. Right, exactly. Yeah, because I really was. I was so focused on Laura with this book. Mm. I've, I've not had it since and I didn't really have it previously writing other books. But but with this one, her her emotional and psychological arc was 
um, set from the get-go and the plot I built entirely around her. Mm. Um, so anything that was happening sort of um, separate to that was just like a nice little bit of garnish, I think. It was really all about Laura. Mm-hmm. And of course, Laura has that um, uh, uh, the experience of um, uh, being a, a child actor, and that is, uh, you know, is is sort of fundamental to a character, and and to to you know, um, again, I don't really want to spoil too much of the story, but let's <laughs> let's say she she doesn't have as many child actors don't she didn't have a great uh, parenting um uh yeah. yeah let's leave it at that um and that's that also seems to be a really interesting it's sort of like the rep- the return of the repressed you know it's it's this this history that you push down and then up it pops in other formats um and it, and in other nightmares in this case um have you had any experience like uh, with with child actors or former child actors yeah i did um I went on a set of a horror film, one of my first ever set visits, or I should say location visits. It was a house in the, the English countryside. It was mm. a little horror film called The Children. I've never seen it. I've got this weird streak of going on set and then never watching the film. <laughs> and that's one of them. That was about um, very nice kids turning evil and killing people. Mm. And yeah, there was there was this very surreal experience of interviewing a child actor who was... I mean, she can't have been any more than eight or nine years old. And it was me and maybe one or two other journalists who were on location that day. And we sat and interviewed her. And I think she had sort of a minder with her. Um, But bless her, like she didn't really have much to say because, you know, she's just a kid doing make-believe, doing what the script said, doing what the director told her to do. It was quite a weird little um, experience. She was very pleasant. But yeah, yeah. I didn't. I couldn't really use any of the material because it was just like chatting to my nephews. You know, they just talk nonsense all the time. <laughs> um, I had a similar experience when um, uh, Happy as Lazaro came out, and I was. I, I really hate these interviews or these junkets where they say you're going to talk to so and so, and then so and so, and then so and so, and you think those two I don't need. Those two, yeah. I, and it's just because, but they're here and they want to do an interview, you know. So I talked to the main actor out of Happy as Lazarus, and I think he was like 16, 17 at the time. He was just very, very young. And he basically, the director had gone to his school uh, as part of the casting process and just picked him out of the, the crowd. And he was great, but he wasn't an actor. He had no real plans to be an actor. He had no real idea about the film other than, yeah, it was fun. We did this, we did that. And it was, you know, and there was just no, it, it, I, I mean, it was, li- it was like interviewing just a normal teenage kid, you know? Yeah. And, and he didn't, he, I mean, it was, he didn't have any, uh, you know, if if it, if he had been in, he was an Italian kid, but if he'd been in Hollywood, he would have been like, he'd had of his agent, he would have been trained a little bit as well. Oh, yeah. None of that was there. It was just like, you know, well, so what are you doing here? You know? <laughs> <laughs> what cup of tea? <laughs> I think the flip side of that was I interviewed Daniel Radcliffe. Um, he was a bit older by then, but this, I think this was around the time of Horns. So p- post Harry Potter. Mm. And he was, he had been, trained so efficiently that every single answer he gave was solid gold you know you Mm. could use the entire interview without having any wastage whatsoever and then I also interviewed uh, Chloe Grace Moretz uh, when she did the remake of Let the Right One In 
Mm. And she was, I think she was about 13, 14. And she was sitting there with her, her mobile phone. And she was sort of like so seemingly grown up. You know, she she seemed so confident. She knew what she was there to do. Um, and it was like both impressive and a little bit like you're, you seem so grown up. But this, you know, if I was your age in the industry, I would be terrified. <laughs> you know? How do you feel sort of going from your film writing into your into your uh, uh, fiction writing? I mean, obviously, the two seem to be cross fertilizing quite happily at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I'm running out of material from journalism to turn into books. Well, the thing is, I, I always wanted to write books. That was always mm. my dream ever since I was a kid was I want to write stories. I want to write books and um, journalism. You know what I was I was the I grew up in the internet, the age of the Internet or the birth of the Internet. So back in 97, 98, 99, I had websites and I was writing about films on different websites Mm. Um, and I didn't really think about, I didn't think that what I was doing then was journalism, but it was sort of like training wheels journalism. You know, it was getting right. me writing, it was getting me publishing things online. And um, so when I when I finished, I did film and communications at university, uh, purely because I loved film and didn't know what else I was going to do with my life, you know, <laughs> who does it, 17, 18. And so journalism, I stumbled into purely because I knew that I wanted to write. I didn't know how to make a career out of that. So I went to see my um, my lecturer at university a year after I'd graduated and I was just aimlessly bumbling around writing stories and not really doing anything. And that's when she said to me, well, have you thought about journalism? And um, my knee-jerk reaction was like, hell no, because I thought hard news, newspapers go right for the times and that just really mm. isn't my strength at all but when she talked about magazines i was like it was like a weird moment where i was like oh shit yeah like all those magazines that i love reading every single week and people do actually write for those magazines and even though i i did actually follow you know i followed the bylines through the magazines mm. and i wanted to know what that person thought about this film or this tv series but it never really i never really thought that that's something you could actually do it sounds so naive so that's how I ended up getting into journalism. But I always have always had my eye on books, always. Yeah, this this journalism, these papers and articles, it's just specious nonsense. <laughs> just short form, darling. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I always, I always have this thing of saying, you know, uh, I, I like saying at the big, at the top of the podcast, I'm a writer and film critic, and that writer is goes first for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've actually stopped saying film critic as well because i think there's so many bad connotations to the word critic now i mean there always have kind of been but especially now that i'm putting my own stuff out there i'm a bit like no i'm not a critic uh you know you don't get to sharpen your knives on me just because i am a critic yeah i i'm i love criticism i'm writing less and less of it all the time i i, I do love it as a as i like the discipline of it i like the idea of trying to bring a perspective to bear on, yeah. on very very different things and i like the idea of challenging uh challenging myself but um but just because of you know the types of jobs i'm getting and everything i'm i seem to be writing fewer and fewer reviews um yeah and it's, it's i think yeah. it's tough to get review work as well because it's it's, it's disappeared not paid very well it, it's disappearing as well it's just yeah you know absolutely yeah but I, but i also do feel like the the 
there's a gap now where the the words that are worth paying for so if you're going to subscribe to a magazine or a newspaper or even websites behind a paywall those those words are worth paying for because you're not only paying for the reviewer you're also paying for the the sub editors the fact checker Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless ready to get 30 30 ready to get 30 ready to get 20 20 20 ready to get 20 20 ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees promo rate for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Because the editors themselves the commissioning editors all those people who are curating this content to ensure that it's the best content for you mm. um and i think that people are less willing or less able as well you know we're living in tough times people aren't able to pay for that content a lot of the time so i think that it's tough but but people still want the quality even if they don't want to or aren't able to pay for it so i think we're in quite pinched strange times when it comes to professional writing do you feel that you're a, a horror novelist first though is that what is that where you want to go you know do you want to do you want to maybe leave the film world and and go more into just just writing pure horror uh the short answer is i don't know right <laughs> i don't know i think that everything is just so precarious that if you have a job you should probably cling on to it with you know your last breath so i have got a part-time job right uh, i work for radio times magazine um i'm on their film desk so i do 3 days a week there and that's great because that gives me time to write uh, outside of those hours um so i'm very and you know i enjoy it and i enjoy, i like the people i work with so i'm loath to just throw that away to sort of like to wade too deeply into the the strange unpredictable world of books because you know you're you're hot shit one day and then you're dog shit the next day it you know it can happen on in a breath um so i think like long term i want to be able to keep writing books i love books i love the the challenge of a book the puzzle of a book um but it's getting harder and harder i think to actually get a book deal mm. so i can't i can't really um predict what's going to happen sadly Mm. and uh, for some of our listeners who are thinking radio times what's that you oh, yeah. prob- you're probably listening to this via wireless so you know check <laughs> check yourself before you get too judgmental of uh, yeah. old fashioned words still being used yeah. um, uh, it is hilarious how um i can basically if i if i say to somebody who's over 50 that i work for the radio times their face lights up I love they the radio times. Yeah. That's what, that was our Christmas magazine yeah. that you'd get every Christmas. Exactly. But we're now we're like a young magazine now which means that we are between four our demographic 
between the ages of 40 and 50 is booming which makes us young which is oh nice. wow amazing yeah yeah, yeah. It's good, good stuff good stuff yeah. so um what are your influences as a as a sort of as a writer or or even you know obviously looking at cinema because horror is something you can't doesn't stay in one lane at all what's your um sort of the genre masters that you go to and and look at i think in terms of films i i think that scream came along at such a like perfect moment in my teenhood i was mm. so i saw i mean i saw the second one first because the video shop didn't have the first one you know all that that kind of stuff used to happen back then but I would have been, you know, a late teenager back then. And I think that that voice, that Kevin Williamson voice, that Wes Craven voice is just ingrained in me. And I think it was sort of like cemented by all the the tryhard copycats that came after that also had that voice. Or, mm. you know, they just hired Kevin Williamson to write, to dust up a script for them. Um, so, yeah, that kind of like postmodern, self-aware thing that is for a lot of people i think seems affected i think mm. that um there's you know it has its detractors absolutely you know people who watch dawson's creek and kind of go oh teenagers don't talk like that why do they talk like they're in a coffee shop in the you know in their 30s mm. but for me that is sort of like the voice of my generation and so i think that scream has tentacled its way through my writing to the point where actually I find it really difficult to write now without referencing something else. Mm, mm. Um, and I, it's, I guess it's sort of like a, is it called lampshading where you, you reference the, you just call out the reference. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, somebody's, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I've never heard of that, but I'm going to, I'm going to pretend I did so that I can, uh... <laughs> yeah. No, it uh... might be something really awful that I've completely got wrong. It might be some weird sexual act that we're going to check at Urban Dictionary. It's like lampshading is when a partner takes another consenting partner and shoves them up it. Um, No, I really hope not. Up the lampshade. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, you do that in the book, of course. It's sort of like a moment where someone refers to um, uh, the Needleman and says, oh, it's it's like Freddy Krueger, but it's not a joke. You know, it's sort of... uh, uh, Yeah, like there's a bit where... um... But there's like a there's a discussion about final girls and one of the characters is like didn't they already make that movie and then you get to play around with those tropes you know because it's like once once you've called them out you basically have free reign to do whatever you want with them it's like that tarantino thing and i think people don't understand that kevin williamson for horror was kind of quite like tarantino for crime in the for the next 10, 15 years, you couldn't make a movie without in some, you know, Cabin in the Woods and all those, you know, were absolutely doing that that same same thing. And it was all about having people in films who had watched television, who had watched films and, and were aware yeah. they could possibly be in a similar scenario. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I just love that sort of deconstruction of stories. And mm. I think that... Um, I think that's always been in in my viewing, you know. So if I look back at things that were massively influential to me, like The NeverEnding Story, mm. that is a story about a story where the kid is reading a story, but he's got an avatar in the story itself. You know, there's a, there's a whole meta conversation going on in that supposed kid's film. And so I, I just think that is such an interesting way of telling a story. And like Wes Craven did it before Scream with... Uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare where 
you actually see the script writing itself as they are having a conversation in his office. And I just love that stuff. I think it's, I don't know, there's just something about it that just really fascinates me. It's. Um, I think New Nightmare always feels like a tryout for Scream. That it, it yeah. sort of hasn't quite got it. He hasn't quite worked out how to do it. But you can see the road he's on. Oh yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, but I love that. I love that they did that independently of each other. You know, Wes Craven mm. made Scream. Uh, sorry, Wes Craven made New Nightmare '94, and then this hotshot writer comes along with Scream. I don't know if he saw New Nightmare mm. before he wrote Scream. I would re- be really interested to know if he had, because they they are, they're all, they're like paddling in the same bloody pool, aren't they? <laughs> what an image. Oh, thank, <laughs> thank you for that image. Um, so what about horror these days? I mean, uh, I, I talked to Adam Lay, uh, Adam Nyman, uh, uh, actually probably be a couple of years ago now, but he, he referred to this, uh, the gentrification of genre in this idea of a lot of people are making really interesting horror movies, but they're sort of gentrifying the the genre as they go. And I'm thinking of the so-called sort of uh, elevated horror, a term which sends people into proxims, but you know exactly what film I'm talking about when I say that. So in, in a way it's kind of useful. Uh, but how do you feel about how do you feel about that, that this kind of movement and or what or maybe a better way of asking the question is what what of recent horror do you do, do you look at and think this is this is the good stuff? It's interesting. The elevated horror thing does make people really angry, but I think a very similar thing is happening within uh, novel fiction as well, where mm. there is so called literary horror as well, and it's it's a funny thing where. Horror has always been slightly looked down on by the mainstream. And so by coining these sort of tenuous terms, you're enabling creatives or marketing people or whatever to sort of distance themselves a little bit from the horror films that they think aren't really worthy of, you know, critical comment or, um, you know, mainstream attention or whatever. So I think that it's it's a it's a new form of gatekeeping or of you know trying to make yourself sound better than you are that kind of thing. But I know a lot of people who love reading so-called literary horror, but they hate elevated horror films. Um, so there's like a, an interesting disconnect, or there's there's no real parallel at all. Maybe I don't know. Um, for me, I think I do enjoy the so-called elevated horror films. I think there's some really cool, edgy, interesting stuff being made, but they aren't my favourites. They aren't the films that I go back to for a good time. Um, I'll watch them and I'll feel horrible the whole way through and I feel thoroughly miserable at the end of them. Uh, You know, like you've looked at like a Dali painting or something, you know, you're looking at it, you feel gross. You get the sense that you're in some way imbibing culture, but you're gonna go and eat some pizza afterwards <laughs> have like a beer or something that comes free with a t- ticket that comes like a third off with a ticket or something you know it's <laughs> yeah. a deal at zeffirelli's Embleside. um yeah uh, yeah what examples would you give me of literary horror what are you are you thinking of of okay well i don't agree with people with anyone who says this but right. when people talk about literary horror they are talking about the books that are published by Tor Nightfire in the US, which is this mm. fantastic horror label. And it's books like Manhunt mm. by Gretchen Faulkner. Um, 
I'm very sorry, I'm terrible at names. Um, but Manhunt is about it's like a, a trans horror story. Right. Um there is uh like Paul Tremblay's books are often branded right, literary yes. horror, even right. though you know, I think it's just such a redundant, silly term. But mm. it's it's horror that sort of has I suppose a kind of a social commentary to it. It's similar to to elevated horrors, you know, mm, that mm. horror with more going on upstairs, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Not just horror fun. for the thinking man. And Absolutely. Cut, cut to a guy in his uh, sort of whiskered and smoking a pipe in the 1950s. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about horror. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know exactly what, from a production point of view, I, I sort of see, because I go to lots of pitch meetings and things like that, and I kind of see that if you're making a low-budget movie in the 1980s, 1990s, well, 1980s, the chances are you'd make this low-budget movie and you'd talk about social realism and you'd talk about how you're going to go into a certain situation, you're going to film things, it's going to be handheld, it's going to be very raw, and it's going to be... In the 1990s, you might do the same thing, but you might talk about how it's going to be very deep with real characters living on the edge of society. It's going to be like a crime film, but it's a yeah. crime film that people don't usually do because it's not going to be generically crime, but it's going to be... And then nowadays, I think feel that a lot of people making art house movies, especially with a sort of Lynchian feel to it, will introduce like one, you know, it's, it's really about poverty in Brazil, but they're werewolves, you know, yeah. or it's really about a, a black experience of living in New York, but he's a vampire. And, yeah. and it's sort of like, yeah, but it doesn't have anything, you know, it could really easily not be a vampire and you could just, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? It doesn't really, you're not bringing much more to the table, except you're sort of like jazzing it up a bit, you know? Yeah. Um, And I think that jazzing it up a bit can sometimes fall a bit flat. You know, I think you can, you know, we, if you're not being really honest to your story, do you really want to tell a story about a vampire who's who's a fourteen year old boy? I'm sorry, I'm using that example. That's actually not a bad film. It's a film <laughs> called Transfusion, but uh, that's, yeah. that is a real example of of they obviously have that money and they're sort of and that budget and that's what they're going to do. You know, I don't know. I think that it's getting harder to sell. It's getting harder to make films. Maybe I mean it's always been hard, but I think mm. especially um now and i think that it's got to have it really does have to have that killer hook it's got to be a high concept nowadays mm. and i think that 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 that's the reason for the escalating but it's about but it's about that kind of stuff is the attempt to like hook somebody's attention if they're scrolling through instagram or mm. you know just happen to catch a, a bus stop or whatever um so yeah like I, i'm racking my brains trying to think which horror films from the last 10 years have become all-time favorites that I'll go back to over and over again. And I can't really think of many, like there have been some great horror films. Mm. I think that, um, you know, that female directors have, have really been doing amazing stuff like um, Raw. I loved Raw. Mm. Uh, Babadook was fantastic. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there is some great stuff, but, but again, they're not really ones that I, I'm in, in a real rush to go back to. Um, I mean, I quite I like Brandon Cronenberg. I like Infin oh, yeah. Infinity Pool and Possessor. I think were two of the best, you know. And I I love David Cronenberg for the good old days. But um, 
I think the the son the student has now become the master when it, when it comes <laughs> to to those films. I think he's he's really genuinely tapping into something. I can't wait to see his next film, which is a um, JG Ballard uh, Supercab, um, which is almost too on the nose. It's it's a little bit like when yeah. David Cronenberg did Naked Lunch. It was like that's almost, and of course, again, it's you know David Cronenberg did Crash, you know, yeah. It, it's almost too uh too good a match yeah, yeah no it's it's interesting it's a really it's a really interesting um to see where horror is going from 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 the point of view literally i'd never thought of paul tremblay but of course that that's absolutely right and i do i have noticed you know you'll read a book of literary fiction and it will have like a high concept hook but i think this problem of how we pitch and sell movies shapes the kind of stories we tell in a way which has unwanted consequences and by unwanted consequences i mean the meg and cocaine bear right you know you can tell where cocaine bear is a you know it's about a bear that eats a lot of cocaine and and everyone goes i want to give you know they do the futurama meme of you know take my money um but you know hang on a minute what's the story you know yeah. what's the what's the bear's journey <laughs> well but even that i mean i those pitch uh sessions where someone sits down and says well it's all about friendship really or something like that you just want yeah. i just there's a bit of me that just goes yeah i you're filling empty boxes that you have to fill because it's on the form but is it about friendship i mean like yeah jaws kind of does have this male camaraderie to it as well as being about a big shark, but roller coaster is just about roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. I, I'm not. I don't know. Maybe it's just all the hoops you have to jump through, and that's it. And the shut up, John. It's just no. Too... I totally agree. No, I do think that you know, as my dad says, um, you've got to care about the characters. You've got to. Mm. You're watching. You're watching because, like, on a deep level, you want to figure out your shit, and stories help you do that. Mm. And maybe going to watch, you know, uh, a very high concept but brainless film helps you do that by providing an escape in some way or other. But I do, I do kind of agree that you go to the movies to sort of see yourself reflected and and see, you know, those characters become your avatar essentially, and you're watching them act things out. And you might disagree and say, "Oh, I would never have done that. How stupid!" But you're engaging with with what they're doing. And I do think that the art, the art of the the character arc, is is something that maybe gets a bit lost sometimes. Not that I'm speaking from any place of authority, or you know, my book's great, whatever. But <laughs> no, I do think know. that you want that emotional arc. It's why the, the the Star Wars, just to make a really easy, take an easy blow, the Star Wars prequels, for me, didn't work because the emotional arc is just what is it? It's not even there. It doesn't really exist and in any way that isn't superficial mm, mm, yeah it, and, and there's only so much you can do about how this guy turns into a villain in a movie which is essentially for children you know it's yeah. just like and i mean you know to give it his fair due he does sort of go and kill the younglings you know yeah. so it does go to some dark places but I don't know. I mean, I I want to rewatch the prequels again because I I I met a person recently who swore to me that they were the best of the Star Wars series, and I was like, <laughs> whenever I meet someone like that, I think you're crazy, but 
I kind of want to see, I want to sit in your head and watch the films to get oh, what you're gotcha. getting out of them, you know? Absolutely. Um, I love it. I love it when people love things mm. and you want to be able to love, love it in the same way, but um, we are, we're all different, you know, we don't all see the same things. That's my experience of going to festivals. Everyone who's at that festival is incredibly knowledgeable about film. Nobody goes to a festival not knowing anything about films. And yeah. you will meet people who the very worst film is their favorite film and people who the very best film is their least favorite film. And and all, all the all everything and they will all be able to argue it articulately and it's just like wow you know in, in other yeah. words it's kind of the opposite of twitter <laughs> yeah. yeah listen like Josh, it's an actual conversation <laughs> yes exactly and you can drink stuff and you can yeah. have sandwiches wow. and it's amazing yeah. listen josh um before I let you go, uh, I have to ask you um, for a recommended film book. By okay. the way, I think you're the first novelist we've had on. No, no, you're not. You're the second because we had Alan Dean Foster uh, uh, talking about novelizations. So but oh, then he, cool. he does have his whole, he was a novelist beforehand and, and all the way through and after as well. So Yeah. Really I would love to get in on that novelization gig because that sounds like so much fun like fun but also quite easy hopefully <laughs> yeah well he was he was actually very very honest about it i was like oh yeah. what do you do how do you get into them and he was just like oh like i've got a like a music stand on my desk and i put the script there and i put it on page one and i start typing in the dialogue and sort of <laughs> filling in he said she said and it, i was like ah, oh, wow. it's not that you know i describe yeah. some of it because you can't see it so like, yeah. really it's really that easy but he was I I want, I want that job. Well, unfortunately, he's kind of not got that much of it anymore because DVDs uh, came in and everyone... Yeah, I mean, novelizations were our DVDs. You know, they were our... Yeah. And there were a whole series. I get really, very obsessed with these. There was a whole series of Dirty Harry books. You know? Wow. <laughs> you know it's, it's just like... Like, not, not novelizations, but actually continued adventures. Continued adventures of Dirty Harry, yeah. Wow. And then you've got a series like... Die Hard, which I think is like three different novels from three different authors. And, you know, Die Hard 2 is a novel from a different series. And Die Hard 1, nice. I think Die Hard 1 is a novel by a guy who wrote a novel. And the character was Frank Sinatra in The Detective. Yeah. And so when Die Hard came along, he had first refusal because it was part of his contract. If we ever make a yeah. sequel, you you have to offer it to Frank Sinatra. So Frank <laughs> Sinatra was offered Die Hard, yeah, which which would have been amazing. It wouldn't have been. Can you imagine? Yippee motherfucker! It would have been just Sorry. like dancing down the elevator shaft. <laughs> Absolutely. Champagne. Oh, no. <laughs> that was a little bit more Pavarotti than uh, Sinatra. So, Josh, yeah, uh, the question was, um, recommended film book? So, mine is uh, The Book of Horror by Matt Glasby, who I think maybe you've had on the podcast previously. Yes, yes, he's been on the yeah. podcast, yes. it's a It's a beautiful beautiful horror book um it's basically looking into the scariest films ever made um and i think it starts with psycho and it comes all the way up to present day of whenever it was published sort of two or three years ago it's mm. got beautiful art in it 
and it sort of it very cleverly rates each film um in terms of like what it is about them that is scary um so there's trying to remember what the definitions are it's i can't remember but it's very it's a really cool horror book i really recommend it yeah it's sort of like gory or jump scares or yeah sort of sense of doom <laughs> yeah absolutely exactly yeah what, what's the thing that in a horror movie scares you the most what's the the thing that um somebody coming into your house at night mm. when you're asleep that to me mm. is terrifying um, I find it really interesting how there seems to be like a, a real split in terms of some people are terrified by ghosts, some people are terrified by humans. Um, so I've got a friend who is obsessed with true crime. She will devour true crime like nothing else. But if you start talking about a ghost story, she is out of there. Um, but I am the complete opposite. If talk, talk about ghosts, that's fine. They don't exist. But an actual human being coming into your house and you know whatever happens from there on that is that is absolutely the worst thing that could happen i think mm, yeah the strangers or, or something like yeah. that along those along on well, the like the fall the tv series the fall yes yeah that yeah gave me nightmares right, worst right. Nightmare. what about you um well, actually, Billy Fre William Freaking died uh, 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 this week, and I find The Exorcist very scary, but not for the reasons that are usually, you know, the the. It's because it posits a universe in which the Catholic Church are right. <laughs> I find oh that, God! Yeah, you know what I mean. I I find that yeah. idea that this this is the way the universe is organized is the most terrifying thing i mean it's like angel heart creeps me out so that sort of that thing of like a universal yeah i mean i kind of like lovecraft for that because it's it's about how indifferent the universe is to you and so, yeah. so or, um uh lucio fauci's um the beyond has a sort of yeah. en ending which is incredibly so that sort of metaphysical horror is very but if mm. i had to say something sort of local like a local scare yeah somebody being in the house it would definitely you know definitely somebody appearing at the back screen of yeah. the and i'm a sucker for jump scares i f i fly in the air when it... <laughs> recently we watched the well recently whenever it came out we watched the quiet place and we do this thing of having popcorn and putting m&ms in the popcorn it's a recipe that i've made myself and uh so we had that and the quiet place two uh it, we're at the cinema and the quiet place two is on and the first jump scare happens and of course i just jump and the freaking m&ms hadn't hadn't sunk far enough and they went all over the place and rolled to the front of the cinema <laughs> <laughs> because the rake of the cinema is a very shallow yeah. one so you just hear them rolling slowly to the oh leave them but maybe this was... is like this could be a, a sequel to the book of horror it could be the popcorn test yeah which is, exactly you get sent to horror films and if you send popcorn and m&ms flying everywhere it there gets you... 10 out of 10 Absolutely, but the the M and M test will be the Bechdel test for horror films. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs>
Well, Liz and Josh, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, it was wonderful reading your book. I love that kind of horror. I, it, you know, it's the I know it's a real cliche that page turner stuff. That and I loved. Oh, that was something extra I wanted to add. Add is the is the sort of you have sort of in between the chapters you have those pages of the screenplay and pages of the a review and an interview and stuff. And that that takes me all the way back to Dracula and the you know the excerpts from a newspaper. That stuff is is the literary version of found footage yeah yeah totally i um yeah i kind of like when they first when my, when my editor first started talking about how they were going to design the book he said oh, i'm not really sure if we need to design the um the interstitials the found documents and i kind of said well i feel like we, if we're going to do them we should kind of do them yeah. thinking that they would put together something quite basic. And then the the book designer went absolutely beyond my expectations, you know, around the world and back again. She um, she actually, I think she did the design for Grady Hendrix's The Final Girl Support Group right. um, book as well. And so she found like bespoke bits of paper that she could put the script on. She hand wrote diary entries. She um, doodled hair bears and creepy ghost faces and numbers all over and she kind of basically turned this sort of like campy horror book into a like frankly a bit of a work of art like I mm. take no credit for that whatsoever <laughs> um, I say it with no ego it was entirely her and she has made this book beyond anything it would have been if you know it was just down to me basically <laughs> what was her name again so she's called Laura Corliss Excellent. She's, so, I think she, I've got a feeling she's an in-house designer for Penguin Random House. Wow. She's fantastic. She's done yeah. such an amazing job on it. Yeah, just amazing. Shout out to her then for that. And I look, my favourite was the back of the v, uh, the D, um, the VHS cover. Yeah. I yeah, I was... couldn't believe, I just thought she did such a great job. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Okay, well, thanks so much for talking to me, Josh. Take care. Thank you. No, it's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed the conversation i certainly did you can get um josh's novel from all good bookshops as they say and from all internet sites i'll put a link in the show notes so you can just tap on that in order to uh to to secure your own copy as i'm sure you're doing right as i'm speaking um next week we've got a very special guest janine basinger who is one of the prime film historians uh, beloved of anybody who's interested in film uh, she's a fantastic woman with over 15 books to her name uh, and she really goes back to the very beginnings of of books on film i tell you the truth um, and so it's a, a complete honor to have the opportunity to speak to her and i hope you will all uh, come back to listen to that conversation i promise you will not be disappointed until then Take care.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.